Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. I'm back with Navjoy and Jenny, and today we'll be trying to get our heads around COVID testing and Bayes' theorem. James McCormack from the Best Science Medicine podcast will talk us through the basics, and Jessica Watson, GP and rational testing expert, will help us understand what a negative coronavirus PCR result really means. And we've got the legendary sitarist Rupa Panasar helping us to take a deep breath out. I'm Navjot Lada. I am a locum GP and I'm the head of education at the BMJ. And I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. I'm Tom Nolan, clinical editor for the BMJ and a GP in London. And since our last recording, I haven't done any GP work as I've been on paternity leave. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Congratulations, Tom. Thank Congratulations. Thank How's it all going? Thank you. It's going pretty well, thank you. Do you want to hear about the um, exciting birth? I do. How did the we delivery go? The yeah, how's your wife? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she was fine. Yeah, but we, uh, yeah, she was in labour. We went to the hospital. They uh, sent us home, and an hour later, um, the baby was born in in our uh, downstairs toilet. Not in the toilet, I should say. What on the floor <laughs> of the toilet? <laughs> oh my goodness! So yeah. you had actually gone in. Why did they and send, send her home? home? Yeah, well, this is this is what we were wondering afterwards. It did seem a bit odd at the time, given it was you know a third third child. Um, but they said you know you're, you're too early. Um, it could be you know days, but um, it's you know she was clearly not <laughs> going to be days, days. and um, clearly yeah. not days. I think the hypnobirthing <laughs> was was very effective. She was just so calm. At, wow. Uh, Oh, well, well done to your wife. And then did you have to step in and uh, yeah, channel did that you deliver story? The story is that I, I, I delivered channel this baby. Channel your knowledge. Yeah, but the, the, the truth is I just sort of ran around like a headless chicken. I, I, I couldn't even phone 999 properly. Um, <laughs> it was awful. Uh, uh, I, I, kept say, I kept saying, my wife's having a baby. <laughs> and, uh, they, and they kept saying, which, which service do you require? My, my wife's having a baby. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Uh, so eventually which I managed to blurt out Which of many services did and, you require? Yeah, yeah, exactly, police. Um, but no, it was, it was fairly important. I think if anyone saw what was happening, they were, and, and then you said, this guy's a doctor? Oh, well, that's the thing. When you work in general practice, you always you always have those emergency moments. And, you know, I always sort of fret about them in advance and think, oh, you know, if this happened, what would I do? And you'd, all, yeah. you'd always hope that you kind of step up and be the hero. Yeah. And it sounds like you did step up because well, your wife no, has a, yeah. a healthy baby. Yeah, um, I mean, somehow it was okay. But, you know, things like catching the baby, towels, you know, basic things like that. But next time I'll remember those. Towels were given. Has has TV has TF TV hospital dramas and medical dramas taught you nothing? Yeah. If you do anything, it's just anywhere. get some towels. All, all our towels were dirty, and I was just running around the house looking for towels at um, midnight. <laughs> That's a good a good lesson in general, isn't it? It's like actually, can, what, what can medical intervention actually sometimes sometimes things will just progress and happen normally, and it'll all be fine. 
but I'm sure you were great, Tom, as well. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, and I just, I just look back to, to GPs a generation ago or so were were delivering babies, weren't they? Like that was part of the job. Um, and I just couldn't imagine um, doing that uh, right now. Um, I'm thinking of reporting myself to the GMC for, <laughs> for, for negligence. Um, but to try and bring that round to today's uh, topic for, for what we're talking about today, um, it did get me thinking about, you know, well, you know, years ago, I might have been expected to be able to do that um, competently. Um, but, you know, what's, what's the strength for a GP these days? Um, and I, I think one of the main things is how we are able to kind of understand risk and probability and kind of weigh things up in our minds and sort of be that, um, you know, take a person's whole story and undifferentiated symptoms and and kind of work through that with the patient. And, um, you know, with that, I can deliver a story very well, but uh, a baby, not so much. <laughs> and and that's what we're talking about today. So with that very tenuous link, um, let's introduce the, the topic, um, which is basically those little calculations that we're always doing in our minds when we're when we're seeing a patient or assessing a patient. Um, you know, they come in with a symptom and you're asking them questions. And in my mind, at least, you know, I've got these different possibilities and every, with every question I'm kind of... Um, you know, nudging this way or that way in terms of the um, the possible diagnosis is—is is that just me, or do, do you guys do that as well? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, right? Like, you see folks, and you're thinking you're you're kind of somewhere on the spectrum between okay my leading item on the differential is either so likely that it's not even worth testing because it's so likely we're going to do like a therapeutic trial. Or it's so mm. unlikely that also we're not testing for whatever item on the differential. And then there's that gray zone in between of some degree of likelihood or maybe low likelihood, but even if it's unlikely, it's serious. So we need to do testing. I mean, that is mm. in so many ways the bread and butter of GP decision making mm. when to test for what thing based on our estimated um pretest probability or or how likely mm. we think one thing is compared to another yeah and i think with covid um what i found is you know, the number of test results uh, or blood test results in my in my queue has reduced dramatically um and it does make you think that how many of all the tests i've been ordering have, have been necessary and um maybe makes you think a bit harder about you know what, what am i actually going to do with these test results well, there's a lot that we do that's kind of routine, isn't there? That, you know, people just mm. have their annual bloods or their, um, you know, six monthly bloods for whatever reason. And it's definitely made me question actually how many of those, you know, maybe this is an opportunity to think about the frequency of that testing and do we really need to do all of those um, all the time? Because, yeah, the kind of um, not having to just check things, which, you know, sometimes you're never sure actually what was the indication for doing this particular test. Um, it definitely frees up some capacity and you know it spares the patient a trip in to have a blood test mm. Um, mm. as well and um, the thing I've noticed in terms of decision making around testing and perhaps this is not so relevant to COVID-19 but just more um, sort of the world of general practice before COVID um, was that actually once I'd made a decision you know if someone came in and they were tired all the time for example um, to use that old chestnut um, you know once you've made a decision to do a blood test, you think, oh, okay, this person warrants a blood test. And you can argue that 
you know, I've got, I think this person has a reasonable pretest probability of be, of having iron deficiency anemia, but I'll, I'm doing a blood test, so I may as well add in the TFTs. And, and if mm. I'm doing that, well, then I may as well add in, you know, uh, HbA1c. And so it's, it's that thing that I think I struggle with, which is, you know, there is some sort of decision making and thinking that goes behind that decision to do the test. But for each individual test, I'm not sure that I um, go through that process every time. And that yeah. leads to a lot of kind of, you know, additional results that perhaps didn't need to have been. Yeah, borderline HbA1c results that you wish uh, yeah. <laughs> you'd never had, had, had Good to, plug for a recent uh, BMJ at. article. Well done, Tom. <laughs> well, I was, I was basically going to talk all about that all, all the episode. It's a bit of a bugbear of mine. <laughs> but you're right, Navjoit, this, um, like, I, I have also experienced that when you're ordering a test. It's like there's one threshold. Am I going to do a blood test? period. And then, well, if I'm doing this blood test, I might as well think about that blood test. And it's like people have to reach a certain threshold of severity or anxiety or potential grave consequences to warrant, you know, Mm. testing of some kind. And then, and then what else would you add on to that? I wonder um, how much different um, health systems just by virtue of their structure influence testing as well. If people aren't paying out of pocket for each additional test, do doctors order more? Or, um, you know, in contrast to where you are paying for each additional test, you really need to think about, okay, wow, like that's Mm. this many dollars and um, what am I really going to do with that? Or if you profit personally from the the test that you're ordering, is that Oh, for sure. That's I think what also, us NHS GPs get get very snotty about. You know, these these <laughs> doctors elsewhere must have that kind of conflict of interest. So is that is that unfair? Am I being high and mighty? I mean, that's not my that's not my individual scenario. But yeah, I can't imagine how how um, you know thinking like I've I've seen um, in the past couple years living and working in Southeast Asia, so many examples of over-testing. Um, the best example is this idea of like a health package that people um, in low and middle income countries pay extremely high fees for um, this, I, this to be given a gold stamp of good health. And it consists of all mm. these tests that are not evidence-based. So like Mm. Um, EKGs for folks without symptoms, mammograms for women, you know, who are young, um, all these tests that Mm. have no evidence behind them and they pay so much money out of pocket just to be given this like gold seal of good health. And these are invariably offered by private clinics that are Mm. standing to make a lot of money. I guess even without the, I mean, that the financial interests, you know, drive a huge amount of this. But even without that, it's hard to escape the mindset of, you know, oh, well, better to do this than not. I'm doing this, so I might as well do this. You know, um, prevention is better, earlier is better. You know, we're, we've that's so ingrained, I think, uh, not just in the medical profession, but in society, really. You know, we're really, you know, I think actually better err on the side of caution and throw in that additional test or or do the whole package. And um, yeah, I think that really needs to be kind of interrogated a bit. Yeah. So that's what we're we're looking at a bit with our interviews today. Um, We thought we'd 
try and just go over some of the basics of like I suppose probabilities and and this thing Bayes theorem, which um, I think puts a lot of people off the phrase, but uh, I think it's something that we do naturally anyway. It's it's just about having an idea of the, um, the the likelihood of something before you do a test or even before you answer, ask a question or do an examination uh, and sort of coming out after the test or, or, or examination with a, a, you know, a better idea of how likely that thing is. Um, so we, well, I spoke to James McCormack, who's a professor of pharmacy at the University of British Columbia uh, and co-host of an excellent podcast called the BS Medicine Podcast. And I asked him to run me through the basics. And that's coming up after this message from our sponsors. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need protection you can turn to whenever you need it. With new challenges always arising, we're here with expert medical legal advice available 24-7 in an emergency. And because we're discretionary, we've got the flexibility to protect you for a wide range of situations with individual support that's tailored to your needs. During the current crisis, we know GPs need this flexible support more than ever. Visit medicalprotection.org to find out how we are helping our members through this challenging time, including policy changes, extended membership benefits, and medico-legal advice. Yeah, hi, I'm a professor with the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Sciences at the University of British Columbia. And uh, the thing that I've been doing over the last number of years uh, is trying to help healthcare professionals understand evidence, put it into context. And we, as, as you guys know, we just recently did some stuff on how to sort of think about lab tests because of some of the variation associated with it. And so it's really a taking the best available evidence, making it as simple as possible, but making it also as practical as possible. So, yeah, James, could you talk us through how, how we, the principles, I suppose, as though I'm back in med school at the lecture that I never paid attention to, maybe talk, talk us through yeah. how we do this. <laughs> there, there were so many of those. Well, no, attend, yeah. Yeah. Not... <laughs> yeah. No, don't, but it's, and, and I think that you're, you're right, it, it's sort of the, the principle around it uh, is that, you know, the, the only reason to do a test is if it would change what you would do, mm. right? Or if it would change, you know, if it would make a decision on a diagnosis and so on. And so there's a fair amount of science and unfortunately a fair amount of math around this yep. in that, you know, we, we, we can really never be sure of most things. But when we're doing a test, if, we, if you knew for sure a person had meningitis, you wouldn't do a test. Mm. You would just treat the meningitis. If you were sure they had uh, otitis media, you would just treat them. Yeah. But we we aren't always sure, and uh, you know we have we look at a variety of signs and symptoms around something. I don't think we do this intuitively in our in our heads. We don't go that there's a ten percent chance that person has otitis media. We I, I I don't think you would do that. You probably go I don't think it is, but it could be. And you don't necessarily put a particular number to it. So let's say you had a, a, a kid in front of you and just on the basis of a couple of things you've looked at them, you think their chance of having otitis media is, I don't know, probably maybe 
Well, we could do a variety of tests or we could do a variety of assessments. And every one of those things that we do has a likelihood ratio. And you can find these, there's a lot of great websites that you can find the different likelihood ratios that'll, that'll say, that'll take your 25% probability and increase it. And, you know, there are different things like, for instance, you know, clearly if, if, a, if a kid has ear pain and you, you, you're sort of waffling about whether or not they have otitis media, you think it's maybe about 25%, if they have ear pain, that increases the probability to around 55 or 60% that they have otitis media. Mm. So we can, we can do that sort of approach and, you know, it really depends on the severity of the condition because, you know, we were talking a little bit about meningitis earlier on. Even if you have a uh, an inkling that it's maybe even a 10 or 20 percent chance of having meningitis, you would probably empirically treat it. So you don't really need a test mm -hmm. that tells you whether it's more likely that that's the case. But maybe the, and then there are. Go ahead. Maybe the other way around. You, you want to exactly test that tell you it's not and then you can you don't have to kind of panic and yeah. call 999 yeah no no and exactly and so there are uh the opposite of a test that's positive if you will is it's negative and we do have you know a number of te uh tests that you can do questions you can ask patients that will help you rule that out and there's a whole mathematical uh, process around that. So, you know, for, for, you know, for instance, you know, as it, we'll just go with the otitis media thing and it, not even a lab test. But for instance, let's say you you were thinking that, you know, uh, maybe a kid has otitis media, thinking maybe maybe one in four chance. If the parent doesn't think the kid has otitis media, that's just one example mm. that reduces the pretest probability down to about 10%, which is just, the, and mm. all of these sort of, these discussions, signs, questions that you can ask have probabilities associated with them. And we have a number of tests that can very much rule out uh, whether or not you have a condition. So I guess sometimes it's, um, we can be so falsely reassured maybe by a negative test. You know, if, if we, if someone does have symptoms, which are pretty suggestive of a problem um and you you have a negative test which you you, you want in your mind you're thinking that rules it out then is that mm -hmm. right that sometimes that isn't isn't the case well yeah and and you can almost never rule out anything completely or rule it in completely mm. i mean unless unless you're using sort of the gold standard test mm. uh you know you can easily rule in appendix you know <laughs> appendicitis if you do surgery and find that the person has appendicitis type of thing. Yeah. So you can obviously do that, but there's a variety of tests. But, you know, uh, really with almost any test that you are doing, you need to have some sort of an appreciation of how does it change your mm. uh, pretest probability. Be but the most important thing though is uh, how comfortable are you that you it would make a change. So for instance, we, we talked a little bit about um, you know, uh, a, a serious condition like meningitis or, or the different types of cancer and so on and so forth. Would it make any difference for you to know that it was a 25% or 50% chance? Because if it didn't, mm. there's no point in doing those tests because you would either treat or not treat depending on the severity of the condition. And I, you know, many of the tests that we have pretty good likelihood ratios, which is the the the, te the 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 sort of way that we look at these sort of tests are around things like infectious diseases because we want to make these decisions 
because we're nervous about people who have, you know, otitis media or strep throat and, and, and uh, or um, potentially meningitis. But you know as well as, as I do that is that the, the threshold for treating really we do some tests, but the threshold is almost always based on on how sick the person is. Hmm. You know, so, you know, if, if, if you got a kid who looks really, really sick and, you know, you 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 think it's meningitis, not meningitis, but you think it's, you know, otitis media, hmm. you know, you can do some tests, I guess. But the bottom line is you're going to treat it hmm. because they're they they look really ill. Do you know what I mean? Is that that you're going to be choosing antibiotics somewhat on the basis of these tests and some of the some of these tests are pretty reasonable to rule out because it's nice if you can rule them out because they, you can go well they were probably viral but mm-hmm. if the kid is you know if the kid is really really sick I'm, I'm assuming that as much as anything would lower your threshold for using an antibiotic I, at least that's the way i would think about it so i think a, a lot of that was for me at least, uh, comforting in a way, which which I think is a common theme in this podcast, is that I think that re- reaffirms maybe the kind of process we go through a lot anyway. You know, don't do a test unless it will change your management. But um, in some ways, just knowing that there's a statistical or sort of um, mathematical basis for that is, is, is quite reassuring. Yes, I agree. I thought that was a really interesting. And um, the thing that, Um, I found really compelling was this idea of, you know, you have, even though we don't actually think of a number, we are automatically kind of trained to ascribe likelihoods or probabilities in our mind. And then um, his example with the otitis media was great. Like if a kid has 25% probability, but then also has ear pain, how does that change the way that we think about it? And it's interesting how um, how we, during our training, at some point developed this system of thinking, right? Like, and now it to the point that it's automatic, and we're not really doing the math, but we're kind of doing the math. Um, it made me wonder about what happens when we get the importance of any individual symptom wrong, like his example with the ear pain, mm. and you know, raising the risk then from 25% to 55 or 60%. But what if there is a symptom that we Mm. erroneously think is super important or perhaps not important and actually has dramatic impact on the actual probability or likelihood of disease, but we have it wrong and either it's magnified in our mind or seemingly inconsequential. And that that was kind of scary. Like, yeah. what happens when we get that, <laughs> the importance of that symptom wrong? So just to pick up on that, Jenny, um, there's this great, great website called the NNT.com, um, the number needed to treat.com, um, which uh, actually where there is published evidence about what these likelihood ratios are, um, you can go and have a look and see, I suppose, how your own kind of sense of how important a particular symptom or test is compares with actually what what the research um, tells us. So I've got one up here on my screen about uh, temporal arteritis, and um, it lists the uh, uh, positive likelihood ratios and negative likelihood ratios for various symptoms and and tests. And I think one which I found quite useful is the ESR, because, you know, in a sort of, I know, a patient over 60 or something, you you would 
routinely use an ESR, the sort of same day ESR, to to try and rule out the, the possibility of um, temporal arthritis. Uh, and so uh, let me find the results for this. So if it's positive, so ESR over 100, then the so likelihood ratio is 1.9, which actually I think is not that high. I would have thought, you know, if you have an ESR of over 100 mm-hmm. in, a, in, in a patient, then that's going to increase the likelihood of that by a lot more than, than that. Um, and if it's negative, so ESR is not abnormal, then that's 0.2. So I guess sort of, you know, an, a big decrease in the likelihood that it's temporal arthritis, but but doesn't, but not maybe as, as dramatic as I'd thought. Cause I, and again, as someone who would often use a, an ESR, a normal ESR is a very reassuring um, thing. So I think you can, can be caught out by these things. But I'm so fuzzy on the actual math mm. here. Is that because temporal arteritis is actually quite rare? And that's why the likelihood ratio only changes a little because even with an ESR over 100, it's still such a rare condition. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think the, the, the prevalence or the, the, how common the condition thing is has a big effect on what your pretest probability is, doesn't it? But um, I'm not sure about... Because mm. um, there are other things that an ESR yeah. over 100 could be related to, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. yeah and I guess particularly in, in that age group of people that you would generally be suspecting temporal arteritis, you might see an ESR, a high ESR for other reasons. And I think you're right, There, there is kind of your mm. pretest probability is influenced by a lot of things, not just um, the prevalence of the disease, but the likelihood of, likelihood of an alternative diagnosis as well. So mm. I guess for some test results, you know, like ESR, mm. there can be lots of things that could, you know, they're a bit nonspecific. Mm. I think the other thing that I, I find interesting about looking at this table, there's about, I don't know, 20 different symptoms and signs and, and, and others, which all have fairly modest um likelihood ratios but when you put them together uh and if you start to get you know Mm. um you know fatigue fever scalp tenderness uh diplopia you know then yeah all those things then you know your pretest probability even before you've done your your esr is so high that you know even a normal one isn't going to rule it out so um it's quite i think that's quite a useful thing that in a bit of extra reading i've been doing for this episode is um you know, think of every question you ask almost as, um, you know, as, as having its own likelihood ratio and um, and maybe not over giving too much precedence to the, to the blood test result, um, com- you know, compared to, a, 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 you know, an answer to a question which can, can be, you know, more helpful in many ways. I think that's such a good point and definitely something I am guilty of forgetting is that actually all that kind of stuff in your head that you're thinking about before you request a test doesn't go out the window once you get the test result um and i think i mean if you park the the problem of do you even manage to check all the results that you request and get that kind of um, feedback on what you're requesting that's kind of separate thing but even if you are i think we put quite a lot of weight on the test result um, or i do anyway and you know if that result was negative say i mean for something like temporal arteritis i guess that that's a bit more 
acute and something that you might, you know, might still make you pause and think, actually, maybe I'll, I'll still send that woman um, in. Sorry, I don't know why I keep saying woman. For some why I've just assumed that this person with temporal no, arthritis okay. no, is a right. woman. It's fine. We've been saying men for, you know, millennia. Why, why so am I good. doing that? Sorry. I, yeah, anyway. But this <laughs> hypothetical person who might be a man, might be a woman, <laughs> whoever they are, you might still send them in. But for a lot of other things, <laughs> there might be, um, you know, you, you, you can give a lot of weight to that blood test result. I'm going to stop talking now before I reveal any more of my gender biases. Uh, right. And I think it's this this interesting point, Tom, um, and after what you were saying, you know, when something is so likely that you know you're going to um, take a certain course of action and when a negative test would not be sufficient to put your mind at ease or to rule it out in your mind. Exactly. Well, by what James is saying, you do do it because if you don't have it, a specialist thinks you're an idiot or you don't do it. Right. Because following James logic, then. Yeah. So when you ring the med med reg, you could say, yeah, I've I've done all of this. I'm a smart doctor. Please like, please give me your validation. Please accept this patient who has a pretest probability of (laughs) exactly. And actually, I haven't seen them because I know that a physical examination is not going to reduce that pretest probability to (laughs) enough to not make me refer it to you. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I'll try that one next time. Uh, So, should we move on to another test, which um, you might have heard of? Um, It's a test for for coronavirus. Come across that one. What's uh, yeah. that? I think I've heard that mentioned yeah. once yeah. or twice. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Jenny, you you maybe want to take over here because you had you did the interview, didn't you, with um, somebody who knows a thing or two about it? Yes. So I spoke with Jess Watson, who is a GP, and as you introduced her, Tom, a rational testing expert, and I wanted to just have a chat to her about specifically PCR testing which we have a little bit more experience with and a little bit more knowledge of. And I wanted to have her walk me through the thought process behind pretest probability to the point that someone is tested for COVID and then how you approach a negative test result. Now we have antibody tests becoming increasingly available, but just to keep that conversation really concrete, we were focusing on the PCR test. My name's Jess Watson. I'm a GP working in the UK in Bristol um, and also a researcher with an interest in the use of diagnostic tests in primary care. What I, we, we need to be careful how we communicate with our patients um, right at the start when we're, we're, we're suggesting testing or organising testing for them. And what mm-hmm. I would tend to say is, you know, no test is 100% accurate. Um, with these particular tests, if we get a positive result, then that is um, that is a very strong result and we can be very confident that yes, you do have COVID. Um, mm-hmm. But what I'd say to a patient is if you get a if you get a negative result um, and if you've got you know, strongly suggestive symptoms, we need to take that negative result with a bit of a pinch of salt. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't necessarily rely on it to completely rule out. Um, and again, there's kind of, there's, there's going to be a bit of a judgment call in that. It'd be great to have clearer guidelines, but 
you know, if someone has a, a let's let's sort of try and think through some maths. Um, mm -hmm. If someone's got a, a pretest probability of say eighty percent, so if we yeah. had a hundred people, eighty of them had COVID nineteen. Um, if we're guessing that the sensitive the sensitivity is probably maybe seventy percent, that means we're going to miss thirty percent of people with COVID. So out of 80 people with COVID, that means we're going to miss 24 of those people. Yeah. Um, so actually, that's quite a, a, a big number. And so we, we need to, I, I think, to be on the safe side at the moment is if, pe if people have strongly suggestive symptoms, um, I would be advising them to, to, to stay safe and to self-isolate in line with the guidance for people with COVID-19. So seven days, uh, following their symptoms or 14 days for, for household contacts. So I, I hear you um, and I want to push you on that. So what degree of symptoms is sufficient to say, we think this test is a false negative and you should self-isolate because the range of symptoms varies so widely from asymptomatic to the classic triad of cough, fever, shortness of breath, all the way up to respiratory failure. So if someone has the sniffles and a sore throat, what if someone just has a cough, but they're otherwise well and no fever? Where, where do you draw that line? It's, it's really tricky, isn't it? So I had exactly that scenario myself last week with my husband, um, who started <laughs> coughing. Oh, no. Was absolutely fine. Oh, and no. Fully uh, no fever, no breathlessness. Um, and... You know, in my mind, the, the alternative diagnosis was this is actually his hay fever and kind of mild asthma flaring up. There's high pollen. And so he had a test which came back negative. His cough, by the time the result came back, was improving. He had no fever. Um, and so on balance, I was kind of estimating um, before he had the test, I thought it was it was pretty unlikely that he did have coronavirus so once we had a negative test result I felt reassured that yeah that went from pretty unlikely to very unlikely. Hmm. I wonder if your calculus changes when the folks who are getting the tests and have a negative test are higher risk. So for example um, speaking of family members getting sick um, my mom <laughs> Uh, who who lives in Michigan, had a cough a couple of weeks ago. And, oh, learning that news was just so hard, trying to advise from afar without being there for her. But, you know, even though testing has been limited in the U.S. as well, she managed to get a test and within 24 hours found out the test was negative. But I would consider, because of their age, both she and my dad at higher risk. And talk about, you know, being uncomfortable, giving patients advice. How do I tell my parents, oh, uh, you've been living together for more than 50 years, but you better sleep in different parts of the house and you better stay away from each other. How, how, what, how does your calculus change when the patients you're advising about how to interpret negative tests are at higher risk? Absolutely. Well, you know, then you've got you you don't, you're less willing to take any risk at all, aren't you? So so where for my husband, I, you know, who's otherwise fit and well, I might be able to say, well, you know, the risk now is probably less than three percent that you've got it. So that's fine. You're okay. I don't mind being in contact with you. Uh, you you can't take 
perhaps any risk at all if you're if you've got someone who's at, at high risk and so these are all challenging judgments and I guess the thing I'd say is that as GPs this is what we do every day in clinical practices we deal with uncertainty we manage risk and actually although this is a new disease so perhaps we feel less familiar and less confident actually let's remember this is what what we are all trained to do and what we all do day to day day in and day out is is make these kind of complicated judgment calls based on symptoms and signs and tests what did you really advise your, your parents at the end well i mean Again, it's really hard. You know, my, my parents are not yet at the stage where they feel totally happy taking life advice from me. <laughs> um, and at the end of the day, I, they went back to living as normal. And their argument was, you know, before my mom got her test done, let alone before getting the results back, they had already had, you know, very close contact with each other. So if we go by that argument, that you know, if my mom had been infected, my dad would also have likely gotten infected, although not 100%. And that was why I kind of half-heartedly said to her, uh, maybe sleep in different parts of the house tonight, <laughs> just on the off chance that you have it, but dad doesn't yet. Um, but no, I mean, and the, uh, luckily, by the time she got her results, she was already feeling better. Like you were saying about your husband had not started getting fever Um had not had any shortness of breath that we could appreciate. So, I mean, unfortunately, both she and my dad are fine. But there is a question, right? Like, did you both just get lucky? And I guess we'll see when they have access to antibody tests. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I guess this is where it comes to shared decision making, doesn't it? Because we, we can inform mm -hmm. patients um, that, yes, there's still a, a small risk. And they may say, you know, okay, fine. Uh, I, I'm happy. I'm happy with that. Um, but we need to think carefully about how we share that information because I think there's so much out there in the press about test, test, test um, that many people kind of see it as very black and white. That you know, it, it gives you the answer, um, and the uncertainty isn't being uh, must needs to be communicated. Mm, I think that's a really important suggestion. Um, Jess, have you been seeing lots of people with confirmed or suspected COVID infections whose symptoms just seem to go on for weeks and weeks, even if they never get sick enough to be admitted to intensive care? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, we seem to be, uh, it's mostly suspected um, in my practice because we've not had tests We've not had access to tests, really, to to have confirmation. Um, but we have got patients who are having very prolonged um, illness course. Um, and it's very difficult advising without any sort of definitive test results as well uh, on for those patients. Yeah, I was going to ask you how you are talking them through this. It's really challenging, isn't it? And, and I don't know about you, but most of our 
care now is being done remotely which makes it even more difficult because you know there's that there's that lingering unease of kind of exactly. am I missing something do I should I really be bringing this patient in face to face when when should I do that um you know is that an unnecessary risk to to myself to my colleagues to the practice um yeah it, it is really challenging and I think um it's we're all kind of avidly trying or, or I'm sort of trying to read as much as I can and understand as much as I can um, mm. about the kind of natural history of this and I, I think that's something where I'm seeing lots of papers from hospital but I'm not seeing papers from the community to know what the, the yeah. natural history and the course in the community for patients with less severe end uh, symptoms but still protracted prolonged challenging symptoms and I suppose with these protracted symptoms, you know, this is where perhaps the antibody tests might might be helpful um, to it's not going to change our management, perhaps, but it's going to give us a little bit more certainty that, yes, this is what we're dealing with. Um, and perhaps, therefore, you know, don't need to be too worried about looking at other other possibilities. At times, I've been worried about particularly um, whether these people might be having sort of small pulmonary emboli or something, because I know it kind of might be increasing vascular complications as well. So, um, yeah, it's 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 challenging in in many different ways, isn't it? That's a terrifying thought to end on, isn't it? That that's perfectly possible, um, and no one would know about it because we're not doing any investigations on on these people. It was such an interesting interview. I think um, uh, I think the message of you know this is stuff that we are used to manage. You know, we're used to managing uncertainty and thinking about risk and trying to advise our patients. I guess what's different is. A lot of us won't be used to um, doing that within a pandemic and for an infectious disease where, you know, the result matters in terms of further spread and what advice you give to the patient to kind of limit that to protect themselves and protect others. Yeah. When I was talking to Jess, that was kind of going through my head is, yes, we um, deal with uncertainty. We help patients to manage risk, but the particular consequences of infection and how we would advise them to stay safe and healthy um, feels like a lot. Asking people to isolate and stay away from people and, um, you know, to disrupt family structures and homes, um, it just feels like such a big call when you either don't have a test result or when you don't feel comfortable trusting a negative test result. It feels like Mm -hmm. so much to ask people to do in those circumstances. And one thing that struck me listening to that as well is that, you know, throughout this pandemic, we've never really been told or, or been advised on how common the coronavirus is in our community. Um, we get a sense of it from the number of calls, that, you know, coming in about it. But of course, those reflect infections that happened usually, you know, two or three weeks earlier. Um, and of course, to get that ballpark pretest probability you, you need to have a sense of how common the thing is versus how common everything else is that causes similar symptoms um so I, I would imagine you know it's very difficult to do these calculations um and as the pandemic declines and hopefully stays low and the level's very low in the community then i, I wonder how that's going to affect how we interpret the results as well 
Yeah, one thing that has been interesting in trying to estimate pretest probability has almost been needing to assume the worst case scenario. Like so many people who I've advised mm. with some symptoms that could reasonably be attributed to COVID-19. And if they have like a risk factor, say a known contact or travel on a plane as of a couple months ago, it was almost like for the safety of everyone, we have to assume you have it, even though you're not going to go for testing or we may not be able to trust those results. Yeah. Um, so the way not you, having the test is kind of useful because you're not giving people this negative result. With And, and usually, I don't think people are really being told anything around that saying, and by the way, a negative result doesn't necessarily mean you haven't got it. Um, in some ways, maybe not having a test in that earlier phase may be more useful. I don't know. The tricky thing also is about symptoms, which I think you mentioned, um, Jenny, about, you know, we, we still haven't fully mapped out what the, or maybe we have, but we're at least certainly, I feel like the advice we're getting at public health level is, you know, fever and cough. That That's kind of, th those are the serious um, symptoms we need well, when we need to think about COVID. But there's all this data about, you know, um, loss of sense of smell and, you know, atypical presentations in older people, um, GI symptoms, COVID foot, you know, all this stuff, you know, well, how does that influence your pretest probability? And also, if we aren't doing that testing in the community, which I agree, it does seem to have its kind of uses and that you can just sort of tell people to, you're not tell, sorry, it does have its uses because you can, you know, without a test, the advice is to self-isolate. Um, but it also means that we just don't know the kind of, um, we can't really map what's happening in the community very well without at least some sense of that, even with the flaws of the testing. Jenny, the other thing in the interview was, um, I don't know if you want to talk about your, your relationship with your parents a bit more. Like, um, <laughs> do they often ignore what you say? <laughs> no, it was, it was all good. Um, Tom, do, you, do I, your I, parents listen to you? Because I, I would say I totally relate to Jenny's position of, you know, having parents who will... My parents, I don't think they'll ever kind of quite believe that I'm a doctor. I'm still like a an eight-year-old in there, right? So, yeah. I don't, I yeah. don't think they realise yeah. I am a doctor, actually. I'm not sure they've taken that much interest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, they don't listen to me, really. No. Um, anyway, getting back to the topic of uh, COVID-19 testing. So, um, Jenny, you mentioned that Jess has written this uh, article for the BMJ about interpreting a COVID-19 test result, which I have to say I found incredibly useful in just thinking mm. through all of this. And um, listeners should look up that article if they haven't seen it already. Um, but what's also been very um interesting is the discussion that it's kind of prompted, I think, you know, about about these difficulties of estimating the pretest probability. And in one of the rapid responses, there's a really interesting kind of reflection on, well, what 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 do we mean by a positive and a negative test result? And what do we mean in the context of COVID-19 by saying a test result is negative? And I'm just going to read out, you know, um, this is a rapid response from Arnold Zamansky, who's um, a returning GP from the COVID Clinical Assessment Service, just to illustrate, you know, just how much uncertainty there is in this area. He's given a list of um, of what uh, a negative test result for COVID-19 may mean um, and, and, and just illustrates how unreliable it is. So he says, a negative result may mean, one, you haven't got it and you never had it. 
Two, you have got it, but you are incubating it, so your illness is yet to come. You are probably infectious. Three, you have got it, and the test is a false negative. You are infectious. Four, you've got it, but we can't tell whether you're still infectious. Five, you've had it, but the germ has gone and you are no longer infectious. Six, you didn't have it when you had the swab taken, but you have acquired it since then, so you might be infectious. Seven, the swab was done by someone with very brief training, so maybe negative because it wasn't done properly. And so there are all these kind of, you know, and his point is that that what people will want to know, people are having these tests done, is whether they've got the germ, whether they are infectious and what will happen next. And I think that just illustrates just the kind of full range of kind of possibilities and just how complex I think this all is, um, you know, in terms of the timing of the disease, the technique for taking the test, let alone, you know, once you get into the sensitivity and specificity. So wow. um, yeah. that's kind of should we all just stay home for the rest of our lives? <laughs> yeah, well, that's the plan, that's, isn't it? I thought that's that was what I <laughs> So we're getting to the end of today's episode and uh, this is the bit where I am supposed to ask you to share the podcast and to like us and send us stars. But um, I've been lo- I've been looking at this daily, but uh, nobody's bothering. So <laughs> I'm just wondering if we need a different approach. Do you think it makes us sound a bit desperate to, to say, oh, please, please rate us on, <laughs> on Apple Store? I think if people knew how much it was breaking your heart that we didn't have more reviews and more likes and more subscribes. I think that would really appeal to people's sympathies and would encourage them so? to go onto iTunes, yeah, and definitely leave a positive review okay. for us. So yeah, I, I think the more yeah. pathetic you sound, Tom, the better. Like <laughs> us, like us. Tom just delivered his daughter at home. Like <laughs> us. <laughs> yes. Surely if that doesn't warrant a like, then I don't know what does. Yes. <laughs> um so uh thank you to our guests thank you to to james and jess and thank you to childcare who provide the music that's uh, far cooler than than, than we sound um, you can check them out on spotify and thank you to navjoy and jenny thanks thanks tom, tom. Uh, now it's my favorite part of the podcast uh, deep breath out where we share the things that help us to escape and de-stress uh, please send us your suggestions to practice at bmj.com or tweet using the hashtag deep breath in. But today it's Navjoy's turn. Over to you. Yeah, so t- today's deep breath out is um, a tune that you might be familiar with, but perhaps not with this arrangement. Um, it's by Rupa Panasar playing the sitar, Kaviraj Singh on the santur, and Gurdan Singh on the tabla. And it's a playful spin on a classic, and I hope it um, makes you smile in the same way that it made me smile when I first heard it. 